0: And aggression. BBC News. Later this morning, the travel expert Simon Calder advises Peter White on holidays that offer blind travellers the chance to enjoy independence and flexibility. Blind Man's Bête Noire is at half past nine. First, Fry's English Delight on Brevity with Stephen Fry. Have I said too much?
1: Yes. I believe we can build a better world. Of course, it'll take a whole lot of rock, water, and dirt. Also, not sure where to put it. The form? A tweet. That one weighing in at a mere 102 characters, yet it contains a happy thought and a slightly surreal joke. Today, I'm saluting brevity. Not the shrunk, the subbed, the precy, the digested read. The naturally brief. 140 characters is your limit for the tweet. That works out at 20 to 30 words, depending on the sophistication of your vocabulary. It must be said that the English language is well suited to the nifty reductions of the keypad, and I'm not just thinking of LOL and OMG. The average English word has just five letters, apparently, which is handy for us Twitterers. Cardinal Richier, the driving force behind the Académie Française, would have been appalled to discover that the French prefer now to Mantinon in their texts these days. Mais un moment, s'il vous
2: plaît.
1: Which, as you well know, translates from the Japanese as
2: the old pond. A frog jumps in. The sound of water.
1: The Immortal Frog Pond Splash from 17th century Japanese haiku master Matsuo Basho. You see, brevity has a long and distinguished history. All you who blame tweeting for our descent into duh de- stupidity take note. The tweet might turn out to be as valuable a form as the 400-year-old haiku. And did you know that there are some Twitters who only tweet in haiku?
3: Really? <laughs> that horrifies me. I mean, I can't imagine it can be very interesting, but, you know, fashion changes and... Uh,
1: haiku poet Caroline Gourlay takes some persuading on the link between the tweet and the haiku.
3: I'm not disparaging that, but it's, it's not haiku and Bashu would have turned in his grave, I think, to see what's generally regarded as as haiku. And there are classrooms of children who are told that the one important thing about haiku is that it must have 17 syllables. But in fact, that's not the case. The Japanese sound symbols that they use for haiku are much shorter than English language syllables. The sound symbols are their phonetic characters. But because of the uh, difference in the languages, English language haiku should be about 12 syllables. But even that actually is not the most important thing about haiku. The most important thing is the the spirit of haiku, the type of poem it is. It's not a wise saying or a maxim. It's a, a short poem of the senses and it's the awareness of a moment during one's day expressed as simply as possible without banality. And one uses the most simple language possible.
1: A small epiphany is the way haiku expert David Cobb describes the spirit of the poem. Now, Caroline, we'd be honoured to hear one or two of your English haikus.
3: I'd like to read two haiku that I've written, and they were both written on our farm. We live on the Welsh border, and all my inspiration for haiku comes from nature. Daylight fading... A curlew's cry lengthens the hill Dark forest pool A boy skims his flat stone Across the silence I think that the best haiku do stop the mind and you think that's it, absolutely perfect, it, it doesn't need anything Every word is being used to its best advantage, there are no extraneous words And um, I like that clarity in my own mind.
1: So less, famously, is more. And the smaller the canvas, the greater the art needed to fit it. Perhaps that's why some autobiographies are such weighty tomes, with the recent publication, which will remain nameless, running to a whopping 438 pages. Brevity and autobiography seem poles apart, except in the hands of an expert
4: miniaturist. I'd like to start tonight by telling you a little bit about my personality. I'm a very private and secretive person. That's it, really. Tim
1: Vine. More from him later, but not much. If the literary biography is a detailed account of the journey of the soul, then the epitaph is the expired ticket. Poignant, but inevitably a bit tattered.
5: I rather like this phrase. This is a, this is a standing tomb, kind of thing that Dracula might live in. And it says, Mrs Elizabeth Rayner, early allied in blood to the illustrious house of Percy.
1: Writer and epitaphophile Kevin Jackson developed a passion for epitaphs when working near London's Bunhill Cemetery, the burial ground for nonconformists. Daniel Defoe is there, and Isaac Watts, the English hymn writer, amongst others.
5: I think that I've been interested in epitaphs for about as long as I've been interested in writing because it is a particular literary genre but allied with a certain morbidity perhaps and an awareness of mortality and the need to have memento mori about us. Of all places, I think it was the Tennessee State Fair that I came across a resin replica of a New England tombstone which had a rather sad-looking face with droopy lips and uh, rather goo-goo eyes and little roses and it simply said, remember death. I thought, well, I've got to have that. So it cost me, I don't know, five or ten bucks or something like that. And uh, it's travelled around with me ever since the last 25, 30 years. Um, I think that 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 phrase, remember death, is wonderfully opposite, of course, to what you're supposed to do. Take a moral piece of learning, take a piece of moral advice from an epitaph, but it's also wonderfully terse. And I think in many senses the greatest epitaphs are the very, very brief ones. Uh, we, We inherit them from the Greek world and the Roman world. And one of the things, obviously, about their brevity is that they were designed to be carved on stone and unless you've got an enormous amount of stone you know you're not going to get whites on very long so a couple of lines four or five lines at the most seems to be the best quite a lot of authors compose either seriously or ingest their own epitaph uh, one of my favorites is from john gay the author of the beggar's opera and it simply is a couple it simply reads life is a jest and all things show it i thought so once but now i know it Very pleasing. Uh, And the idea that somehow, almost like the engraving inside a ring, for example, that it sums up a life in something which is perfect and complete in its own right. And
1: there's a certain romantic poet also buried in what were once Fields here.
5: Bonhill Fields is also the burial ground of William Blake, one of the great poets who, in my mind, is the great poet of brevity. A lot of the phrases by Blake which people remember most are from a a short piece of work called The Proverbs of Hell, and some of them are very paradoxical and strange. I think they're often misunderstood in many ways. The road of excess leads to the palace of wisdom, something that a lot of drinkers and druggers have used to justify their behaviour, for example, is one of these, and something which is memorable because of its brevity, precisely, and because uh, in the nature of its brevity there's a kind of elegance or formal balance which makes it stick in the head. You know, there's a balance, there's this obvious symmetry, isn't there? The road of excess leads to the palace of wisdom. It's like neoclassical architecture, you know, balanced on both sides. The tigers of wrath are wiser than the horses of instruction. Um, phrases like this just resonate in my brain. And once, once you hear them, they're almost like kind of cosmic graffiti. You kind of can't get them out of your head.
1: Like Blake's cosmic graffiti, the words that make up the best epitaphs punch above their weight. They have a uniquely intense value. But let's not forget that stonemasons, like freelance writers, are paid by the word. Since the age of breathless men on horseback arriving with messages only to be slain by the receiver, terseness has been at a premium. But it was in the 19th and 20th centuries that technology began to highlight the oddly inverse relationship between the number of words written, the time they take to write, and the number of pounds or dollars paid for them. Mark Twain was famously asked in a telegram to produce a two-page story in two days. He replied, No can-do, two pages, two days. Can-do, 30 pages, two days. Need... 30 days, do two pages. And of course, in Evelyn Waugh's masterpiece, Scoop, the accidental war journalist William Boot displays his utter incompetence from the front line by telegram.
5: Nothing much has happened, except to the president, who has been imprisoned in his own palace
1: by revolutionary junta headed by superior black named Benito and Russian Jew, who Bannister says is up to no good. Lovely spring weather, bubonic plague raging. In an early telegram exchange between Oscar Wilde and his publisher, however, words were omitted completely in favour of punctuation. Wilde inquired about the sales of his recent book by sending a loan question mark. The response, of course, was exclamation mark. So it seems that Wilde was a proto-Twitterer too, or at least a proto-texter, able to cram the most meaning into the briefest of communiques, which is also the job of a comedian, isn't it? Tim Vine sitting with me here in the studio.
4: I got a text from heaven. That was a godsend. (laughs)
1: <laughs> you see, <laughs> perfect example. Now you specialize in precisely that kind of uh, sh- small, perfectly shaped one-liner. That's your shtick, if I can call that it.
4: That is apparently how it's turned out. And
1: I wondered why why it was, or how you discovered, <laughs> as a as an entertainer, that miniaturism of that sort was what suited you.
4: Well, do you know what? I'd like to say that it was uh, it was deliberate, but I think what it is, I think it it, it started because I got uh, nervous at the gaps between laughs. Right. I think that um, if I just kept it short, then the next laugh would be arriving sooner. And they're um, strung together, as one
1: might say, like pearls on a
4: necklace, except that they're not connected. I mean, to me, they're connected because right. I've, I've had to walk around in a field talking to myself to link them somehow. <laughs> but, right. um, yeah, so they seem unconnected. Sometimes they're in clusters of three or four. I remember a review once of my act where someone said uh, it was a bit like being tickled. You know, it, initially it was annoying. <laughs> 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 and then it became hilarious. So, uh, which I quite like, you know. And,
1: uh, I don't know if you can give me an example of a joke that might have, might have occurred to you, mm. and that you first expressed it to yourself, and you thought, that's good, but I can... I can reduce it. I can concentrate it down.
4: Well, sometimes it's just a case of taking out a, a, a phrase. I mean, I, may, I could well have said something. Some, I've got a joke where I say Velcro, what a rip off. I mean, let's not analyse that. But, <laughs> <laughs> but um, I could have started that by when I first thought of it, saying, "What about the invention of Velcro, ladies and gentlemen? God, what a rip off that was!" Just in that situation, it's just easier just to just go yes. Velcro, what a rip off. Yeah. Absolutely.
1: The best known American exponent of a, of a string of one liners is, is is Stephen, Stephen Wright, Stephen Wright yeah, yeah. the American. But he he also adds to it a rather almost a, um, a macabre sort of affect of a sort yeah, of dead face. No, that's right. Which well, is was... not your thing at all. You're, you're much more human and smiley than he is. Yeah.
4: Yeah. That, that's just a desperation to be like on my part probably <laughs> <laughs> um but his uh his one of his jokes was uh, yeah you can't have everything where would you put it but um <laughs> which again is very nice and short isn't it i think it's i think it's a bit like say ribena if if you have ribena with water in it it has less power than if you just drank it neat you know
1: And, of course, it it allows you, though, to be um, a rare thing in the modern world, which is somehow, because these are little jewels, um, they seem to have no political, social, cultural, uh, age, gender or class... Meaning, well, so that anybody yeah, I, I, can enjoy them without feeling, oh, is he, oh, that lefty Tim or is yeah. that righty Tim? You know,
4: it's, yes. it's about the joke itself. It's just about the joy
1: yeah, of I words.
4: I mean, sometimes in socially um, chucking in puns and things can sometimes be. Uh, I'm not the sort of person who necessarily is doing that all the time. My friends will probably disagree. but yeah. um, Whereas if you go for an absolute barrage of them, you can sort of wear people down a bit sometimes, I think. Yeah. I think that's what, what uh, show business is all about, isn't it, Stephen? It Wearing is. people down... <laughs>
1: Um, And I suppose I I can't help but mention um, that you are Mycroft to um, Jeremy's Sherlock, the the smarter brother. Moriarty. (laughs) Possibly. Um, And and when you and Jeremy were growing up, was was it just clear that you had a different cast of mind? Because brother's are always interesting. He's a very well-known broadcaster and you're a very well-known comedian. And and could you have ever swapped or are you so
4: different? Well, he, he has actually written a couple of jokes on my act and you'd probably like to hear one of them yes uh, I so would I went to the, this is quite a silly joke considering it's Jeremy who made it up I went to the chemist I walked up to the counter and I said and she gave me some lotion I said that's amazing how do you understand what I just said she said that works live believe it or not <laughs>
1: <laughs> and there, 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 I collect sort of jokes or stories where the punchline is one word. Yeah, yeah. You know, which are which are very pleasing. Do you know that story about Sparta, which was also known as Lacedaemonia, or the advancing Athenians who were going to uh, enslave them all during the during the Peloponnesian War? Uh, sent a messenger and said, "If we capture you and take your city, we will." we will take no prisoners, we will slaughter your women and your children, and all your men will be slaves. Right. And they sent a messenger back with a with one-word reply, if. <laughs> and, yes, and, and that's, two letters. And that gives us a lot. the origin of the laconic reply. Because they were a, well, lac- there we a laconic are, people.
4: Well, I, mean, I quite like it where the punchline is quite short, like you're saying. Um, I sometimes say that it's a bit like the, the kid in... Um, uh, sixth sense, I, when he says, uh, I see dead people, I say, I hear punchlines, <laughs> I go around, you know, someone said to me the other day, um, and it's a word, it's a phrase I've heard so many times all my life, you know, said, um, serves him right, and you think to yourself, serves him right, and, uh, and I thought of a, a joke about this one-armed butler, I say, it's one-armed butler, his left arm is missing, serves him right, one-armed butlers, so they can take it, but they can't dish it out. <laughs> Tim Vine. Comedy has always
1: enjoyed a natural affinity with brevity. In the realm of books, though, there's supposed to be a freedom for the author to write at the most appropriate length for the content. But in 2001, a new genre was invented with brevity its USP. Rebecca Nicholson is the founder of short books.
6: You're boiling down a kind of big idea into a short essay. It's like boiling everything down into a stock cube. And we wanted to link journalism with publishing and we wanted to bring to readers essays that we couldn't put into newspapers because newspapers were not running pieces longer than 5,000 words on subjects that often deserved much broader attention but not subjects that deserved huge great clunking books and it has to be an idea that is conceived And so you have, for example, side-like characters who don't deserve the attention that, say, Mussolini or Queen Victoria deserve. So a biography of Bess of Hardwick fits perfectly into a 20,000-word biography. And that was our essential idea at the beginning. Obviously, it's a different pleasure to what you're going to get from War and Peace. But I think there's nothing greater than knowing that you're going to get the beginning, middle and end when you sit down. With a a book.
1: So brevity promises instant gratification. And if you can find it in a single short word, then all the better. Former editor of The Sun
7: newspaper, Kelvin McKenzie. I worked in New York in the late 70s, where there was a managing editor there who all he used to shout out was, short words needed, short words needed. And of course, he's right. The essence of a headline is brevity. The shortest word which caused the largest problem was gotcha, which was the sinking of the Belgrano in the early 80s during the Falklands War. And what happened there was there was a strike going on, so I was producing the paper on my own. And one of my colleagues came in who wasn't allowed to work. I was the only person allowed to produce the paper. And uh, she said, you know what, gotcha. And I said, yeah, Gotcha. Good.
1: History captured
7: in a single word. Well, from one perspective, anyway. One word, or sometimes two words, is the perfect headline. It doesn't involve a thought process of any difficulty. There is no impediment to you understanding what it is. You pick up your paper and there it is. For instance, the, the picture of uh, Diana and Charles when their marriage was basically coming to an end at the Taj Mahal, basically looking in different directions, and the headline was simply The Glums. And everybody knew, even although glum is not a modern word, and in fact is associated with actually some 50s radio comedy, actually everybody knows what it is. You can be old-fashioned in your use of English when it comes to headline writing. You don't have to be on the moment. And the pun? Puns are the lifeblood of the headline writer. So just recently, there was a, there was a great headline in The Sun. It was basically the page 16 lead, right? Nobody was going to read it. And uh, there was a story saying that women in the North are not getting the same advantages as men when it comes to being promoted within their company. Right, and they and they were seeking an investigation in this, and the headline said, "It's discrim up north," right? Which I cheered me up no end, right? This is this is six months ago, I can still remember it, so it still brings me some cheerfulness. You have to have an overdeveloped pun mind. So, for instance, Tim Vine, the comedian, he would be utterly and completely fantastic. Well, that's a glowing testimonial, Tim. How would you feel
1: about uh, working as a headline writer?
4: I was reading a newspaper the other day. I was, I see the thief stealing T-shirts in order of size is still at large. <laughs> you see, you've got it. Have you actually had any offers? I haven't had an offer. I, was, remember, I remember talking to someone who worked for The Sun, and I said that I would like to do that. And, uh, and so I, I did actually ring someone up. I, th- I thought I might have spoken to the editor. It might be someone pretending to be the editor, of course. Um, <laughs> and uh, he said he would ring me, or someone said that. I think they were humouring me.
1: I suppose the obvious thing about newspaper headlines is that they have their own language that we don't use in English. And it's for brevity, it's simply for bandwidth in the sense of paper mm. bandwidth rather than bandwidth as we now so use it. So I suppose they,
4: wrote th- they want it shorter so they can get the letters bigger. Yeah,
1: MPs in bid to axe is a perfectly normal phrase you would see on a newspaper. Nobody ever speaks like that.
4: No. I remember when I was in the army, though, I woke up one morning and there was a soldier pointing a hairdryer at my duvet. I said, uh, don't blow my cover. <laughs> <laughs> it's rubbish, is it? We'll put the laughs on later. <laughs>
1: <laughs> on the other side of the Sun newspaper, we have The Guardian, where brevity is also increasingly valued. Laura Barton.
2: The column I do for The Guardian, the music column, is a short... It's 700 words, and I like that form. I feel you could almost hold it in the palm of your hand. It it means you can take a single idea, you can isolate a single lyric or a single word in a song or a particular artist and just talk about one single thing about them.
1: To write about a single idea or a single lyric is an idea of such singularity that you would think the pop song itself might be overlooked. So what about the song? How short is short? And what does this do to
2: lyrics? Like a lot of music fans and music writers, I find the idea of the perfect pop song quite alluring and this idea of a sort of three-minute-ish burst of of music and ideas. Um, But I think what it does lead to is this shorthand, this feeling of shorthand in, in music and pop songs in particular, where you're messing around with language. So you've got made up words, this sort of nonsense words like... Bom, ba, loom, ba, lamp, bom, bam, a wop bop a wap-bam-boom, which I've probably said wrong, which is uh, from Tutti Frutti Little Richard. It's famous for being this huge nonsense word in rock and roll. But it it really, I think it expressed an energy and a vigour and, and an excitement of that period when rock and roll was so new you couldn't ignore it as soon as you hear that cry when it came on the radio you know it is same way it's saying this is a whole new era stop what you're doing and dance you know and that describes something that it would take an awful lot longer to say if you were to spell it out and then you've got other examples like la la means i love you quite nice about that song is that we all know so many songs that say la 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 you know and i suppose it sort of suggested that in all those instances it means i love you or you know that music brought a whole different way of saying i love you there are so many other examples of those sort of neologisms you know like hansen and bop and that kind of stuff and a lot of that it actually came from do what and before that from bebop and scat and West African chants and that kind of stuff, those kind of nonsense words that fill time in music.
1: So if what Bopalula is shorthand for the social revolution of 50s rock and roll, and if gotcha somehow captures the red-top brashness of the 80s, I wonder what single word will capture the decade that follows the noughties. Alex kratoski technology writer, go on have a go
8: if i was going to choose a word to sum up where we are right now and where we'll be in the next 10 years i would choose meme it's a modern adaptation of the word trend uh, but it's very very specific to a social construct that that rapidly spreads throughout a population so whether it's a joke or whether it's a new word it captures the zeitgeist of a of a particular event uh, of a moment it's a it's a trend that becomes a phenomenon
1: the word meme was coined by evolutionary scientist richard dawkins if a gene transmits vast amounts of biological information in a tiny package a meme does the same thing with culture and ideas and isn't it just this explosion of information that makes brevity so necessary if we're to control the flow
8: Technologically, what we've done is we've created filters. So one of the classic filters is what's known as an RSS feed or a really simple syndication. It's actually what newspapers have always used in the past in order to get information that they're very specifically interested in. It cuts out all of the extra stuff, all the stuff that we don't want to know about uh, and focuses 100% on the content that we're interested in. And we do that through, now we do that through things like Google Reader or any of the other feeds that we have access to. Another thing that we do is, simply because of the nature of of the ones and zeros, the binary, the code that's embedded in the memory processors of of these machines, the technology can only cope with and can only embed a certain amount of content. If you think back 10 years ago, before we had smartphones and before we were able to wax lyrically on on our SMS text messages, we only had 140 odd characters that we could communicate with one another. And what is amazing is that people actually started to really express themselves with that, with that brevity, you know, sending things back and forward um, in the same way that people were doing with pagers.
1: So an age of meme. Appropriately, perhaps, it can be rendered as me, me. Technology offers each of us a mountain of information and simultaneously the means to filter it into ever tinier bespoke portions. (laughs) But what if we took this further, if we filtered and filtered some more? Surely the reductio ad absurdum of brevity, then, is silence. No information, no words at all, perhaps not as absurdum as you might think. Haiku writer Caroline Gourlay.
3: Haiku is more akin to silence than to words, and I think the best haiku do stop the mind and lead one into silence, which is perhaps where we all want to go. I think it's not a coincidence that a lot of haiku writers meditate. Perhaps one is always searching for silence, and it's perhaps only when the mind goes fallow, I think, or is allowed to stop, that anything really creative comes out of it. The whole thing of um, space and brevity, I think, does lead one in in a very fulfilling direction
1: but silence is observably of indeterminate length. Anyway, with 39 seconds left of this programme, let us quickly celebrate the short-lasting. Poetry, comedy, irony, telegraphy, creativity, biography. And with 25 seconds left, we have time to perform in full Samuel Beckett's greatest work, Breath, which consists of the cry of a newborn baby, some breathing, another cry, and a fade to black. No?
4: Not enough time? Bit of Tim Vine, then. Ah, I remember the first thing my mum said to me when I was born. She said, ah, I was expecting you. My local police chief does a talk on heroin, so you can't understand any of it. i say what often gets overlooked, garden fences. <laughs> Someone <laughs> of the doctors, he said he got a heart complaint. I said, murmur, who's going to hunger
5: <laughs> There
4: we go.
0: Fry's English Delight was presented by Stephen Fry and produced by Sarah Cudden and Nick Baker. The readers were Ben Wilbond, Sophie Black and Yoku conoco and it was a testbed production and there's more of that interview with tim vine on the radio 4 website next week the art of persuasion our new book of the week in 15 minutes is simon stevenson's account of his emotional journey following the death of his brother dominic and his brother's girlfriend eileen in the indian ocean tsunami let not the waves of the sea begins at a quarter to ten in business returns to bbc radio 4 the series which explores the way we work.
7: We mustn't despair about Spain. Some countries are broke. We are not broke.
0: Peter Day examines how being inside and outside the Eurozone is affecting Poland and Spain's economies.
4: Is business improving now? Is Spain creeping out of recession?